Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, October 4th, 2022. It is what we Jews call Erev Yom Kippur, so we will not have a show tomorrow, just to let you know, as we will, as, as some of us will be atoning for our sins while you guys all sit around and eat bonbons. Enjoy yourselves if you're no, if, if you can, while we suffer, that's what we're here for: is to suffer. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it will not be suffering if you go to commentary.org/roast and sign up to attend the Barry Weiss roast in New York City on on uh, Sunday, November thirteenth, twenty twenty two. Our major fundraising event of the year. Commentary is a nonprofit. We depend upon. Uh, the proceeds that we get from the roast, as well as our subscriptions and 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 the kind elmosinary donations um, of uh, the people who uh, give to us um, uh, for tax deductible purposes. Um, but the roast is really a, a wonderful event. I, I it's hard for me to describe it because I'm the MC of it. But you know we've been doing it now for more than a decade, and people just adore it. And Barry is a wonderful and deserving. Uh, subject for praise and a little fun making and that's what we'll be doing with some celebrity guests and a lot of other people and you should really come if you can in new york september 13th it's an expensive ticket but it's really worth it commentary.org slash roast with me and with me on sunday november 13th will be uh our uh my colleagues here executive editor abe greenwald hi abe hi john Media commentary columnist and AEI fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, so we had a very uh, hot, <clears throat> um, vivid podcast yesterday, the end of the last uh, 40 minutes of which were dedicated to trying to take apart um, and confront the logistical uh i mean the existential challenges posed by putin with nuclear weapons the the uh ukrainians on the march putin getting ever more desperate and uh, whether he might uh you know sort of break the 77 year old um uh post nagasaki refusal of any country to use nuclear weapons uh or atomic weapons and um just wanted to square the circle on one point square the circle is a long term but you know sort of close out on on this point that i was trying to make which is that i i worry and maybe noah noah is no wanted to wants to jump ahead to having the incredibly difficult conversations about what might be necessary should putin do this unspeakable and horrible thing and what measures are we going to take and this is a conversation we might need to be having in public because it is now thinkable in a way that it was not thinkable my concern about having this conversation now um aside from the fact that it might engender you know panic and all that is that it 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 has the effect of overshadowing the extraordinary thing that the ukrainians have been doing in not only resisting the russian invasion and miring the russians down but now actually reversing in two or three major spots possibly not only the russian invasion but the russian annexation of areas uh back eight years ago uh and and moving in some odd way toward the restoration of the whole ukraine that i don't think any of us even thought would be the end result of even a successful ukrainian effort and if we focus on putin and the fear of the nuclear weapon we are putting the wrong focus in the wrong place at the wrong time we are turning this uh world historic uh defeat of a tyrannical invading power uh in part due to the west's extraordinary ability to come together uh and the united states has started to come and 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 help in this process while not committing a single person to the battlefield and that we are just not we are we are moving ahead into an area in which we have to start having conversations like the one I was kind of encouraging yesterday about whether or not we're going to this is this mission is too dangerous for us 
to be involved in at this moment if it is provoking Putin or you know pushing the Russian bear to doing something really horrible. So I don't. We didn't really. I want to rebut because I disagree entirely. Okay. Uh, The intention, uh, as I said, actually in that podcast, is not to induce panic, but to reduce the potential for panic by talking about this now by acclimating us to the forthcoming crisis if it if it becomes a crisis and again as i said the other night i think this remains more unlikely than likely it's just becoming more likely but it remains an unlikely prospect nevertheless introducing this now talking about our options reducing the prospect for fear in the public's imagination because when the public thinks the nuclear weapons use they think about a full-scale strategic exchange that is not what we're talking about that is not even on the table threats to that effect will materialize. But we do this now to reduce the, the the likelihood of civilian panic, to reduce the prospect that if and when this happens, that there is a civilian flight from urban centers, run on infrastructure, runs on supermarkets, on gas stations, reduce that prospect. And most importantly, to your point, neutralize the anti-war elements that will come out right away and say, full-scale surrender, full-scale halt to all weapons shipments, return to the table, sacrifice Kiev, do whatever we possibly can to save our bacon, because they'll be coming out in force and they will have new legitimacy to their arguments. And the more we neutralize their arguments now, before it becomes a crisis, the better for that position. Um, I just think there's there's very little chance of reducing panic uh, in such an event. I tend to agree. This is a marginal exercise, but... Yeah, and, and similarly... Um, there's very little chance of neutralizing the 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 anti-war uh, argument in, if if Putin were to use a nuke in some fashion. Um, I mean, that's just there's there's not there's not going to be any any sort of shutting that side down, you know, in that event. But I think it has to be discussed anyway, be, simply because it's a possibility. Christine, where are you here? Well, I, so I'm 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 the least foreign policy uh, uh, well versed among among the four of us, uh, but I'm I, I'm on Noah's side of like wanting to really not uh, get people in a state of high anxiety for something that we are hoping won't happen. Although I guess we saw we did see since we taped on Sunday evening that the uh, nuclear enabled submarine Russian submarine has been moved out of its Arctic port, so that that's not a great sign. But there, the question is, how much of this is is Putin sort of performing the ritual of threatening nukes while not actually having an intention, any intention to do so? Um, but I, I, I think that Noah's right that our leaders should be doing everything possible to just keep people calm right now and okay, continue but, to focus on the conventional warfare that's going on in Ukraine. But I don't think that's what Noah's saying. I mean, and not that I want to speak for Noah. I'm oh. saying Noah wants to make the pop prospect of new i'm sorry no i'm referring to in the third person but making the prospect of nuke the use of nukes in this war thinkable is in in your estimation from what i hear a way to prepare the public for not panicking and i i just think that oh i misunderstood yeah okay so they will panic if there's nature yeah no they'll panic if there's any thought of a nuclear attack even if they're well prepared i guess i'm on there's a thought of a nuclear attack there's been a thought for a very long time. So what? It's only getting more and more real. Okay, but then, uh, open up okay, your window. So then you stop worrying that there's going to be a panic because there's no, be though, panic. the panic occurs in a detonation. No, right. you're mistaken. The panic occurs before a detonation. Mm, I think it's heard the of the Cuban cloud Missile appears. Crisis. People were sleeping in shelters. Like that's what happens when there is a panic about when, when, when the prospect of the use of nuclear weapons becomes. A reality. We really only have one historical data point to suggest that. And if you want Americans and people in the West to start, you know, stockpiling food, you know, emptying out supermarkets and all of that, Biden starts talking about how we're not going to let, you know, if they use a nuclear weapon, we're going to blah, blah, blah. You remember when Trump played the fire and fury game? In 2017 against uh, North Korea and basically said, if you do anything, we're going to rain fire and fury on you. And the hysteria that greeted that, you know, completely, you know, cable rhetorical threat. What? On cable news sets. I remember that. And I was there. No, I think. Anyway, I, I look. 
maybe there's no way to resolve this. This is all a question of how you interpret human nature. And the question of interpretation is you want to prepare people so that they can be rationally, they can rationally understand that what Putin will do will likely not have, have any meaning, will not cause any meaningful damage if he does one of these things where, as you said, he, he hits, he sets something off in the upper atmosphere that doesn't really have much of an effect or anything like that. But um, you mentioned war, and nuclear weapons and Putin, and this becomes a sort of major topic of discussion, and it overshadows the gains in the war of Ukraine, and it turns the war into something vastly more ambiguous. Like something here is about to. Th- this is going, which this serves is, Putin's interest, though, yes. right? Yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. I mean, we, we've we're... had. I think you're both kind of right. The human nature point is well taken because we've had the luxury of complacency uh, since the Cold War of not. Americans I'm talking about here of not really having to think about nuclear war as a possibility anymore. We worried about terrorism. We worried about other other sorts of warfare, but we did not actually sit around worrying about nuclear, you know, not the way that a lot of us, you know, if you're a Gen X or a lot of us did in our childhood, where it was kind of a constant, there were constant reminders, both from our leaders in their rhetoric and in popular culture. But maybe we're entering a new you know, phase of history where we have to start thinking that way again. I mean, other countries have had to do that. I mean, Israel, for example, is constantly on the alert for the development of of nuclear weapons held by a hostile power uh, near its border. So maybe I'm just too maybe I'm just too close to it, but I don't see how uh, Putin resorting to nuclear threats, as he so often does, takes anything away from the from the Ukrainian military and its successes. In fact, it highlights them because it demonstrates the extent to which Russia's conventional capabilities are no match for Ukraines. But I think you are too close to it. In other words, you're you're this is this is a larger point about your about the mindset of right. people. people the, so you're well, saying people don't know enough about this. And I'm saying let's get educated. Well, I don't know that education I, I mean I don't the mean the more you know, uh, right? We need yeah, this sort I of mean, special look, you know, look. In 1961, Herman Kahn wrote a book called On Thermonuclear War. And the whole idea was, in thinking about the unthinkable, and the whole idea was, we cannot sit here and pretend that these weapons don't exist and that they might not be used. What are the consequences of their use? Or the, or the why would someone use them? How would they use them? How to counter strike and how to counter effect? And he became one of the most vilified people on the planet Earth. He was actually a very nice man. And uh, and 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 meant nothing but you know serious you know help to the United States, and you know he was called Doctor Strangelove, and he was you I mean if you if you wanted to you know mention some you know sinister figure in America who like was hungering for uh, the apocalypse, you would mention Herman Kahn's name. So we have a history of what happens to people who like actually want to have who say, okay, look, you know, you can't close your eyes to something real. And then you have Ronald Reagan, and Ronald Reagan came into office and um, and said, look, the way that we handle this, which is the uh, policy of mutual assured destruction, stinks. This can't be the only way to handle this. Either, and Reagan was, you know, very oddly, given his reputation at the time, Reagan was a nuclear zero person. He wanted to, he, he wanted to make a deal with Gorbachev to remove all nuclear weapons from the U.S. and Soviet arsenals. Failing that, what did he want? He wanted the Strategic Defense Initiative, which was a way out of mutual assured destruction, the idea that we could defend the United States against a strategic attack by shooting down missiles from above. And, you know, this was derided as Star Wars, and it was this, and it was that. And we know now from Gorbachev's own testimony and stuff from the Soviet archives and all of this that the advancement of the idea of the Strategic Nuclear Initiative was a key element in the collapse and ending of the Soviet Union, that they looked at our technological advantage over the over them, and they were not scornful and scoffing like William Broad of the New York Times. They said they, you know, might really be able to pull this off and once we, if we don't have this, we're to, you know, we're 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 done for. We have no other element here. Okay, so, that was eighty three. I was very young at that time. I was a yes, toddler. Um, but prior to eighty three, um, this is all only stuff I've read about and watched. And you might remember this better than I. Um, 
the Carter era nuclear review, nuclear posture review began to establish the idea of nuclear war fighting. It was really mad was retired in the late Carter administration. It was not, never not retired. officially, not officially nuclear directive, nuclear decision directive 13, um, which replaced the language of mad, which with uh, should a nuclear attack occur nonetheless, the United States and his allies must prevail. And this was a giant scandal from what I've read. Okay. I wasn't around at the time to see the street protests that manifested in this in this uh, hammered out language that we now currently repeat like a mantra. A nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. But that language was derived from this 1981-1980 uh, set of nuclear posture reviews that created, established the idea that nuclear wars can indeed be fought. And maybe you won't win them, but one okay. side can sure lose more than the other. Okay, this is part of the problem with learning these things simply, you know, through through history and not through experience, because that was not the American that was whether or not there were documents that had laid this out as a possibility. What the Carter administration had done was negotiate a nuclear arms treaty with the Soviet Union <clears throat> that enshrined the the Soviet numerical advantage in warheads on missiles we had assented to the idea that they could have more warheads than we had on the grounds that our missiles were more accurate than theirs, but they could have more merved warheads. And this is why SALT II, the, the, the treaty that Carter had negotiated, ended up collapsing in 1979. And even though when it was announced in 1979, it had the support of two thirds of the American people, <clears throat> it collapsed because people said we are making nuclear war thinkable by allow by allowing the soviets to think that we are willing to accept that their numerical superiority in nuclear weapons and that was a very key element not in getting reagan elected but in establishing the idea that dem carter and his own party although it was his own party that really tanked the the salt treaty was people like Scoop Jackson and other sen other hawkish senators who said we're not even going to let this we're not, you know don't even try to bring this up for a vote you need a two thirds a treaty you need a two thirds vote and we will do everything we can to kill this but it was the idea that Carter did not understand the world Carter and the and the people who were populating the sort of academics and and experts who were populating his government had a bizarre idea that not only did we have to deal with the Russians and treat the Russians as equals, but that we needed to kind of um, suck up to them a little bit. Well, it's also this, this larger abstract idea. I mean, yeah, so Carter froze the Russian advantage in place. Um, Obama did that uh, in some treaties as well, because it's this devotion to the larger abstract idea that if you just freeze weapons making um uh that is a goal in itself uh apart from uh, uh an american advantage right, right. the existential challenge yeah. remains but they think that the the freezing of the right the, the, these treaties have put a band-aid on the existential challenge so uh the fact is that <clears throat> the fact is that uh, you had this very inventive <clears throat> republican politician in reagan who simultaneously went at carter and at the Democrats for being too soft on communism and too worried about the, you know, too worried about the threat for, you know, like appeasing, appeasement, right? The culture of appeasement. That was a famous article that my father wrote in commentary in the late 70s. And that the, there was this culture of appeasement being, being created and that it was very dangerous. And at the same time, he did not want the status quo to remain in place. And that was a deep emotional thing for him. He did not want to be a president who said he wanted there to be a third way, a new way to deal with the Soviets and nuclear weapons. And that that way was our technological superiority over them and that we could deploy that. And that there was a, if we incepted a program that used our technological superiority and, and advanced a goal of being able to intercept nuclear missiles, we would neutralize the threat of nuclear missilery, and that we hadn't we had a we had a prior experience, which is that you know John F. Kennedy had said from a standing start in 1961, we will go to the moon 
and we will return we will send a man to the moon and return him safely to earth at by the end of this decade you know and it took eight years and the idea was well if we announce the strategic defense initiative <clears throat> and its policies you know that has that will trigger an unbelievable creative groundswell that can lead to these uh devices and these techniques of shooting down nuclear missiles to happen and the thing that where we where we're at now and there's a pretty good piece in the new york times about this this morning is the question of whether or not the nuclear weaponry that is not strategic we had a whole like debate conversation about strategic the nuclear that is small that was, you know, intended for use on a battlefield or, you know, whether ever anyone ever developed the famous briefcase nuke or whatever, <clears throat> that um, those things are not, you can't defend against them the way we couldn't defend against uh, a, a, an intercontinental ballistic missile. And you can't defend against it if somebody wants to let it off. And for the first time, really, I think since just after 9-11, where we understood that uh that a you know the islamic radicals who had done 9-11 would have no compunction about using a suitcase a briefcase nuke if such a thing existed and that we therefore had to create the tsa and you know radiological measures in major cities and searches and buildings and all of that in order to you know in order to but the whole reason we did that, that is because yeah. the the threat of nuclear terrorism, remember, had, quote, no return address. Right. It's not the case when it comes to deterrence. You bring right. up SDI. I, remember, I did my graduate school work on missile defense, um, <clears throat> which was uh, intended to dispel this myth that had built up around post-Soviet studies and post-Soviet scholars that SDI was a very destabilizing idea because it was interpreted in Moscow as a first strike weapon. Yeah. You wouldn't have the capacity to intervene, you know, could essentially neutralize your retaliatory response. So Russia would have to strike first. It turns out in the documents that we know of that have been released from the Kremlin that that's really not how the Politburo or the uh, uh, drop off administration at the time, I think, uh, thought about this sort of thing. They were terrified of the technological advancement, right. not the prospect of a first strike weapon. But you do need to think about this in terms of retaliatory responses and self-deterrence. Um, because the return address thing uh, creates the the prospect for self deterrence. You can be hit yeah. and not, and convince yourself that it's not worth responding because you'll right. only be hit again and you won't be able to neutralize the other guy's assets. That's that's yeah. talking yourself out of a response. And so we had, why I want to engage in this conversation now is to avoid that trap to avoid suddenly finding ourselves in a situation in which we could realistically be self deterred and having not had this conversation, having not intellectually armed ourselves with the arguments uh, of how you escalate and how you de-escalate and how you do so in a proportional way, then we'll just be terrified and hide, hide in holes and functionally lose, functionally lose this contest. Okay, so we're, we're, we're <clears throat> the interesting thing is we both, we have the same goal, but we have two different paths that are almost contradictory to getting there, which is I think that the only way to maintain public support and congressional support and presidential support at the level that we think is necessary for the Ukrainian effort, which is a, which is now, you know, the most important foreign policy event in some ways of the 21st century, right? Can we, can, can this aggression on the European continent not only be made not to stand, but, but actually become a deterrent to anybody on earth who thinks going in and swallowing up another country is a good strategy like if we can succeed in in russian russia's being humiliated for having undertaken this action that it should never have taken in the first place then we will have uh we will have done something really you know fantastic for setting the table for the rest of this century and beyond and if we start talking about how we're going to survive a Russian use of a, of a nuke, um, I feel like that will strengthen the arguments that say we need to come back to that we need to come to the table and that we we're, we're, we're heading down a path that is too dangerous. And so if you I think want that's true. Act, what? I think that's true. I, but here's the thing. I think that's true. If uh, the majority of Americans were suddenly certain 
or reasonably certain that this was going to lead to Putin's using a nuke, I think the overwhelming opinion would be, let's get out of this. Let's stop. What I think is interesting and worth mentioning, and it's just a hunch, obviously, is that um, I don't think that would apply to the majority of Ukrainians, actually, um, who are right there. I think I think that they'd rather, frankly, deal with that than live under Putin's boot. Well, you know, that's what's interesting is that the distinction when you get to this point, and I'm now going to say something that sounds sounds crazy, but I'm just going to say it like this: like, with the exception of the radiological effects, Ukraine has been physically invaded by Russians. They have they have blown up cities. They have killed tens of thousands of civilians. You know, you, Ukraine is going through the horror of war at a granular level, and the idea of one really bad bomb will, you know, what they know is if they don't push this push this back and push this out then either this you know so that one really bad bomb they've already they've been through the conventional war so you know a really a lot of their family members have been tortured and killed and shot in the back of the head and had their fingernails pulled out and evacuated to russia and re-educated ten thousand people have died yeah no, that's exactly right. So what Abe is saying is right. Like they're they're all in because they have. I mean, existentially, <laughs> they have to be. It is everybody else, which I think is Noah's point, who isn't on the battlefield, who has been singing, you know, the Free Ukraine song and all of that. Every liberal in this country who who was, you know, the type of people who forty years ago were 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 demonstrating on behalf of the nuclear freeze. And we're standing out in the streets of London and Paris, you know, um, uh, protesting against the deployment of medium range missiles in Europe. All those people are singing pro-Ukraine songs because let's face it, like the cost to us is very is is almost non-existent, except in terms of, you know, financial support, which if we're willing to spend $400 billion on letting, you know, letting some people get their student loans, I know we're not really, but, you know, like spending 40 or $50 billion on this is really not, you know, is, is no skin off our back that much, as you can see, because there isn't much resistance to it. But where the rubber meets the road is that word, is that word nuke, right? Is that word nuclear or or Putin going nuclear? And the terror that that, that that you know evokes so the ukrainians have already seen it as bad as it can be and so you know i mean not to go back to the preposterous game of thrones analogies that i like but you know okay so then then the russians unleash the dragon right and but i mean if if the last on on you know on on a city but if you know or danny unleashes the dragon on king's landing but if king's landing had been nearly destroyed already the dragon wouldn't be such a horrible thing you know the dragon was, was already just a just a, a relative escalation not it wouldn't wouldn't break their will or break their spirit exactly which is one of the reasons why it's such a weird thing for putin to be doing in fact quite the opposite and i would say also I'm sorry to monologize here, but I'll be done in a second. I mean, yeah, it would terrify people. But it strikes me that every leader on earth would say, we have to level the political structure in Moscow right now. Yeah, no, that's actually the theory is that once you, I mean, nuclear weapons exist not to be used. Once right. you use them, they have a very compelling logic. You almost have to use them. Uh, and you know, there's a very serious, allow me to finish him. my thought here. There's a okay, very serious ahead. doctrine um, that would maintain that it is incumbent on us the second these weapons are used, that the party that uses them is deprived of their ability to use them. It would. Tr- it, it, there's a very serious school of thought that suggests it should trigger a, a counterforce strike, neutralize the ICBMs and the silos, and say your next move. Uh, now that's World War III territory, sure, but the the bank is here that Moscow might be self deterred too. The West isn't the only party here that might be self deterred. The X factor, in my view, here is the Russian people. 
Now we see a lot of images of Russians in the streets protesting the conscription. Every Russian that they can find who's willing to talk to Western reporters says, what's this for? We're dispirited, we don't, we don't get it, we don't like it. But there are many millions of Russians who aren't in the streets, who aren't talking to Western reporters. And it's not just because they're scared. You gotta actually, if you have a lot of contact with or any contact with um, those who have some nostalgia for the Soviet Union, and there are many, um, they're extremely nihilistic, extremely right. on board with the national project and very resentful of the world as it presently exists to the point that they might be willing to destroy it. But look, I, all I'm saying is you're, you're saying, you know, we would need to counter strike. I'm saying that the world's re response. I'm not saying we need to. I'm saying there's I'm a theoretical saying, option there. The world's response would be such horror and rage and anger and disgust that, you know, that basically all bets would be off. I'm not saying I don't know that we would then, you know, blow up the ICBMs. That's like too. I'm saying that we, you know, we could send. <clears throat> we could literally blow up the Kremlin. Like I said this the other day <laughs> that we would only not do it because it's a historic building. And, you know, people would say that this is terrible. What are you doing to this great old historic building? But I, I mean, you're not wrong. That's part of it. Yeah, no, no that is strike. that is, you know, I said, yeah, we would destroy Sochi, which is, you know, like destroying the Hamptons uh, uh, for for Russian oligarchs. I mean, we would we would act in ways that would say you are not going to draw as far as we are concerned, the entire senior leadership of Russia will not draw another breath. This is also not new. Leon Schloss, yes. nuclear targeting policy review director, uh, articulated this in the late 1970s that you can't, that it was the assumption based on this Richard Pipes article in commentary that the Russians believed they could survive a nuclear exchange. And it was the policy of the United States thereafter to communicate that there would be no survival for the regime in the event of an, of an exchange right. of any kind. And then we would target with bunker busting missiles or right. command and control structures, what have you, you would lose your command of of the, the people and that would likely mean your death or you would just be neutralized kinetically and that would be right just want to say, with, with, with that in mind i mean because i've been thinking about this a lot since the last podcast and and, and before in fact um it, it really comes down to doesn't it whether or not um putin is acting rationally now or not um if if if, if he is then things like deterring him um th through the threat of the death of him and and all the senior leadership of of in, in Moscow um, is viable. If he's not acting rationally, then none of that matters. And I, mean, I don't and I don't know if he is or if he's not. And no it's does. also that that's an important point because I think it speaks to a broader uh, difference between um, typically Democratic presidents and and Republican presidents as as uh, military thinkers and and as you know foreign policy pursuers and that's this that's that there's there's a sense in which you don't want to go the existential I, I keep saying existential but if it is indeed an existential risk there is some something to be said for a leader going, this is not acceptable. We won't do this. If you think about the arc of normalization that happens with with uh, behavior, remember Syria, remember Obama in the red line. There was this moment we were, you know, we I think a lot of us were like, good, he's drawing a red line. You know, this guy can't gas his own people without the international community being outraged. And then he gassed his own people and Obama did nothing. And it was like it never happened. And we have seen this time and time again with leadership that tends to be more on the left, although I think you could argue Trump did some of this, too. And that instantly becomes the new normal. So the risk with Putin is that, you know, the threats are one thing, but if he actually acts even with a strategic nuke or dirty bomb or some such thing, that instantly becomes the new normal, the new baseline. How will Biden and his administration and the international community respond to that? Look, th this is a very important point because, you know, we keep we've mentioned we keep mentioning <laughs> that the triggering event for 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 Putin's invasion of Ukraine was likely the pullout from Afghanistan and the idea that the West in the form of the United States was showing that it was looking to exit uh, the world of international struggle and that this goal of Putin's, he, you know, it was worth the risk and he did not anticipate the response and go back to 2013 and the red line. What happened the next year? Putin annexed parts of Ukraine. 
You think that wasn't related to our not enforcing the red line? Of course it was related to our not enforcing the red line. You think it wasn't related to the fact that we were in the middle of these negotiations with Iran that eventually came to fruition as the as the JCPOA and that Putin didn't look at that and see that, that as an expression of U.S. weakness that we were even negotiating over this? Of course he did. And then he thought, and properly, that he would be able to do this thing that he wanted to do without much counter, you know, without, without any real countervailing pressure, except a lot of geshrying and crying and people bringing cakes to people and, and, you know, and complaints and all of that. And this takes this to an entirely other level. I mean, that's why I'm saying Putin's um, the thing that would cause Putin to hold, to stay his hand among other things, I think is the experience of the last six months, which is he no longer, I think he would have grounds to say he no longer can understand what the Western response will be. That, you know, what happened here was a surprise to him and that he, he what, however he thinks he can game out what would happen if he did this, he must have lost his confidence that he understands what the West would do, because he certainly didn't expect what the West has done to this point, which is why you want to do what we've done in Ukraine so far, by the way, which is not only to have this battlefield, this unanticipated battlefield success, but to say, do not think you know how we are going to behave toward you, buddy. You better be careful because we're not who we we are not the sleeping giant or the weak horse you thought we were. Okay, so and, we've come around to the beginning of the conversation. You've come yeah. around to my view. No, I'm saying that now. I'm saying that we've well, already we need to advertise that. retail in advance a range of potential responses, all of which are unacceptably. High but I think that can be done privately. Like Abe it said, has been done pri- we, apparently, we've heard, we've, yeah, that all heard. the reporting suggests we are yeah. communicating this privately. I don't mm-hmm. know if privately is the way yeah. to go. And by the way, by the way just yeah, the, the, this point about um, uh, Putin no longer being able to to take us for suckers, uh, take the West for or, as you know, yeah, or or like you know, Frady cats or whatever, um, makes me think. Uh, by the way, you know, Biden also. Uh, it's not just the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Biden eased up on uh, on uh, uh, sanctions that 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 uh, were in place uh, under under the Trump administration, and I'm sure that Putin is well aware of the continuity in the uh, the Obama administration and 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 the Biden administration, and sees it of a piece and 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 links the two together. Um, all of this makes me think it's just kind of a side issue, but this is yet another reason why we shouldn't be trying to negotiate this JCPOA with Iran, because it actually it makes us look like the same old weak country in vis-a-vis the Russians. Right. So Who's the Biden taking Iran's nuclear material. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and by the way, Russia. so the, Bi- the Biden administration finally, after like 10 days in Biden's name, a statement from the president that, you know, I'm sure he wrote in between his naps. Um, it's a very tough statement uh, supporting the protesters and, uh, you know, attacking the regime and all of that. And implicitly, that statement is the end of the JCPOA. I mean, first of all, I think the JCPOA, I, you, you've always, you know that I have always thought that it was never going to happen. That once, particularly once the invasion of Ukraine happened, like that it's 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 demented. Like we're, we're going to have a, a, a signing meeting with Russia at present while we're like, you know, at, at war with, you know, implicitly at war with Russia. That's ridiculous. So I think it's always been dead and they haven't. But I mean, this statement yesterday, which you can go look at, is the end of any, you know, we, you know, this is a regime that we basically say we cannot deal with because it, you know, it's behaving monstrously. And so, I, I just think that that's 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 where we are now. We should let we've been now we've now done like an hour and a half on this between yesterday and today. So let's move on to the other political news from the sublime to the. It's not really ridiculous because it's kind of tragic, but um, uh, this um, um horrible sort of double-barreled uh political hit on on 
Georgia senatorial candidate Herschel Walker, the Republican, um, that the uh, uh, Daily Beast uh, came out with a story that he had uh, Walker, who is you know pro-life in a very pro-life state, um, uh, paid for a girlfriend's abortion in 2009. They claimed to have a signature on a piece of paper, and then they you know they they have like they have physical evidence that this happened. Uh, and then, by the way, uh, he's not just pro-abortion. He's so pro-abortion he doesn't believe in any exceptions for well, rape or incest or the life right, yeah, of the mother. Yeah, yeah. Pro-life, or, right, yeah. sorry, pro-life, yeah. not right. Yeah. And um, uh, right, so he has, you know, he has, and so he paid for somebody's abortion, uh, and then his uh, his own son, who it has to be said, we did a little, you know, we did we did real shoe leather research by looking through his Twitter, like that. That's that's what you get from commentary, is you know. We're there. We're there in the archives of Twitter. And I mean, this kid, Christian Walker, is a MAGA right winger. He's an influencer. He's considered like a TikTok influencer. Yes, but yeah. he is also he is like very right wing, uh, very pro DeSantis. He calls himself a MAGA Republican. He said, I'm thrilled to be leaving communist California to come to free Florida and stuff like that. Like, you know, um, basically then. Uh, went after his father l- last night in you know what can only be considered uh, you know a near act of political patricide. Um, wh- where is that tweet? I'm sorry. I just let me. Just, uh, if you haven't read it, let me just find the find the specific tweet. He uh, says, "I know my mom and I would rather would really appreciate if my father Herschel Walker stopped lying and making a mockery of us. You're not a quote family man quote. When you left us to bang a bunch of women, threatened to kill us and had us move over six times in six months running from your violence. I don't care about someone who has a bad past and takes accountability, but how dare you lie and act as though you're some moral Christian upright man. You lived a life of destroying other people's lives. How dare you? Every family member of Herschel Walker, he he concluded, asked him not to run for office because we all knew some of his past. Every single one. He decided to give us the middle finger and air out all of his dirty laundry in public while simultaneously lying about it. I'm done. Uh, I cannot think of anything comparable to this in my lifetime. I mean, I... I he you has know, subsequently released a, several videos to Twitter as we've been recording, yeah, re, restating his position that his father lying about this in public, lied on Twitter about it, lied in a statement. Um, it's all true. Everything quote everything's been a lie. I mean, he is he's torpedoing insofar as it's possible his father's Senate candidacy. Although he doesn't deserve all the blame for this, the candidate himself has done a fair amount of damage. Well, and Walker has now is making noises like he's going to sue the Daily Beast. He claimed he he flat out told a reporter that this was a lie. Um, what, there was like one reporter in Buckhead, Atlanta, who when the news broke uh, about this this story, so he's denying it. He's going full on denial. Well, he's in den- he's denying the abortion story. But that right. is now entirely separate from the Christian Walker story. He said he loves he his son no matter what. Right. He said, I love my son no yeah. matter what. Yeah. But his son said he threatened to kill me and my mother. Right. Is what right. he said. He said we had to move six times in six months to avoid his violence. Right. Like. Uh, well, they, they, he did participate in this ABC News interview where his. I don't wife, current wife, ex-wife uh, talked about how he put a gun to her head and he yeah. talked about it, too. Right. And his excuse for this, which is what's interesting, is in part that he has he has had multiple personality disorder. Um, so this then gets now to what we were talking about the other day at the beginning or at the beginning of the podcast that we concluded with the Russia conversation, which is does any of this matter like or is, is negative polarization? you know or do you so hate democrats that it doesn't matter if you're a republican you're going to go and vote for herschel walker and i say this now takes this one bridge too far if he cannot definitively disprove disprove i know this is not how we deal with a court of law but the court of public opinion is cannot definitively disprove the abortion story pro-lifers in georgia will now be voting for a candidate who 
uh, is credibly accused of having paid for an abortion, having aborted his own child. And it wasn't like 30 years ago. It was 13 years ago. And secondly, you have non, you know, you have mothers and people like that who are like, he, you know, tried to kill me and my mother. Well, now, Raphael Warnock supposedly drove over his wife's toe with his car. So, I mean, I suppose you could say, well, Herschel Walker tried to kill his wife and Raphael Warnock drove over his wife's we are not bringing our best. But this is one of the you know most bizarre details of MAGA world, which is that nothing is disqualifying, actually. That's certainly the case for Trump himself. And the question is, I, I don't know how much that carries over to the others, right? Well, it didn't carry over to Roy Moore. So we no, know that. Well, certainly not, right. but it did in the primary. Yeah, yeah, they're, Abe's but right. The worst is that accusations the, against Roy Moore were not were not in the primary, right? They were in the general. Okay, there were a lot of very horrible accusations against Roy Moore in the right. primary. It was, it was we a, should remind authoritarian, unconstitutional, regular, unconstitutional. Yeah. But um, it wasn't that he maniac. was chasing. It wasn't that he was hunting sixteen-year-old right. girls at a mall. I mean, that right, yeah, was. But the, that wouldn't have disqualified him either in MAGA world. I think Abe is right because they can rationalize themselves out of it, and indeed. The frustration that manifests in people who want to see candidates who are actually good human beings fuels the MAGA rights support for whoever the most transgressive person is in the race, whoever transgresses these norms of, of decency and, uh, you know, just basic humanity. That's what they like because it annoys the right people that it, the, it, the accusations yeah. alone wouldn't have scuttled him. It was the accusations that scuttled him in the general election because general election voters aren't MAGA voters. Well, I mean, I think you guys are both making a very, you know, interesting point that not only does Trump soften the ground for candidates. Um, I'm sorry, who, just to uh, just yeah. hold that thought briefly, because what he's doing, this whole threaten a lawsuit thing is is extremely Trumpian. You just threaten the lawsuit and pretend that the story goes away. They can't actually file a lawsuit. You're because that Trump. would ruin him. You're talking about Trump or Walker? No, I'm talking about we Walker. Also have, we also have this Trump is a Trumpian move to be like, oh, I'll just sue whoever whoever has this allegation, yeah. and the lawsuit never materializes. But that's enough to get you through a news cycle. Well, it's not. Just I mean, never, I actually, you're right. It never has been, but they, it doesn't. It actually, it actually, it actually doesn't. But the I mean, kids the way call the, a flex. No, the way you do it is that you stand. I mean, the, honestly, the way you do it, if you're if you're not guilty, is that you stand up in front of a microphone and you say, "I did not do this. Uh, somebody is trying to destroy my reputation. I would never have done this. Uh, you know, this violates everything that I hold dear. And how you know, I'm so shocked and horrified and upset that anybody would do this to me. But it, it, he's not doing that, is he? Because he did it. I'm sure and. You know, or maybe one of his alters did it, <laughs> you know, because you really want people with multiple personality. Not not that politicians don't often have multiple personalities effectively, but nonetheless, um, this whole thing where, you know, he has been he's been upfront about his mental illness and all of that. And we've now gotten to a point in the United States where, you know, it's not that mental illness should be disqualifying. You know, I'm not even saying that. I'm saying that, you know, it is the the comportment and the the stability of uh, people in politics is extremely important, right? I mean, but, because... but this really, I, I mean, as a, as a kind of culture shift, it, it is kind of amazing and in a shocking, like shocking, not amazing, wow, amazing, but shocking, like disheartening, amazing to see Republicans now, uh, I think Noah's absolutely right. When someone does something or is accused, uh, plausibly accused of doing something immoral, just immoral and, and absolutely in, in uh, conflict with the values they're preaching, it actually rallies the base. That used to be the base would then rise up and be like, nope, you're out of here. I mean, th this was the whole religious right thing, right? It's like, we want people, and they didn't always pick the best candidates, but there was a sort of attempt at consistency of principle. And now the the inconsistency and the hypocrisy is celebrated. This is There's a mirror image of this on the left, of course, but this is something that conservative politics didn't used to be quite so um, enthusiastic about. But let's well, do it's, it's the nihilism. It's the nihilism. I mean, that, it's that not is just nihilism, though, because if you look at it, here's here's the way it works. It's a degradation over time, because here's what Republicans saw. They saw 
the libel smearing and and you know he wasn't really destroyed, but the libel smearing and in and interruption of of the career of Robert Bork in 1987, they saw this smear of Clarence Thomas, and I will say outright, I do not believe Anita Hill. I think she's lying. The whole thing is a lie, and Clarence Thomas was his defense of himself was so forthright that in fact the democratic controlled senate voted to confirm him uh, as the supreme as a supreme court justice after anita hill which is conveniently forgotten by her propagandistic those some propagandistic people who are just don't like clarence thomas's politics and then used her as a weapon and you know we've seen this over time with these like acts of character assassination most recently brett kavanaugh who was lied about okay so there is a history of this kind of media pylon with democratic and activist organizations feeding the feeding fuel with lies and distortions. And then Republicans are, and conservatives are so have been so outraged over the last 35 years by this technique that when, when it start, when you have actual honest accusations or like true true stories being told about people like Roy Moore or Herschel Walker or Trump or whatever. They're like, ah, this is just, they're just doing it again. They're just doing it again. And sometimes they are doing it again. Like you remember Amy Coney Barrett, like, you know, is servile to her husband because she is part of a Christian prayer group, you know, or like, she's, yeah, she's racist so servile for having to adopted her husband that her husband is a stay at home husband, pretty much who takes care of the seven children so that's how servile she is oh, i'm sorry Gabe. go ahead no, no or, or that she's racist for having adopted black kids yeah right any of that and so but then you get this then this is like trump broke the code on this which is that he could use that anger to neutralize those people in republican and conservative politics who say Decency matters. Personal character matters. It matters what you're like as a human being. And Trump basically was like, no, it doesn't. They want to kill you. They don't care who it is. And, you know, you set a thief, you set a goon to catch a goon. They're goons. I know them. It's like what he said about why he invited Hillary to his wedding. This is how the game is played. You know, you need somebody like me, you know, it's the it's the it's the Jack Nicholson speech from a few good men. Right. You know, you need someone like me on that wall. Who's going to be on that wall? You, Jeb Bush, you low energy creep, you know, um, and and it was it turns out wildly successful because because people responded to it. And then this id broke open. So now not only is it. You need people like this because they want to kill you. It's like they're better. They're better. They're, okay, they're so, better but than what ordinary if talking, people. We're talking about this like he's he's toast now. What if he's not? Who Herschel what if Walker? We wake, what if we wake up on November 9th? Republicans stuck with him. Yep. Pro-lifers stuck with him. Independents got a little squishy for a couple of weeks, but the fundamentals returned and he won by two points. He's five well, points behind now, right? I think no, he's no, 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 no. He's like three. Well, there's one poll that had them tied, but I mean, Warnock is still ahead in the right in the poll averages. But but he was moving, right? right. Are you checking this out? No, yes, I am because I don't know if that's true. Okay, well, Noah, get, get Warnock is well. the average has Warnock up by less than a point. Hmm? Okay, so so there's been a movement of four points in in Walker's favor, which is why when, they and, saved the and, hit. Yeah, for now. and have, he's he's never well. Okay, one the CBS YouGov had him above fifty percent, but no other has, which is not a great place for an incumbent to be. Oh, you talking about Warnock? Correct. Yeah. Okay, but he's not really an incumbent. I mean, he's not an incumbent. An incumbent the way he's been. Since an he's only been in office. Years. Well, a year and a half, right? Okay, but anyway, my point is there's a reason this hit came out now. You think they haven't had it in their back pocket? Voting starts in 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 um Georgia in a week and a half or two weeks. So they are that they 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 waited, you know, the ordinarily, but in the days before we had early voting, this, this would have story been the would week have come before. out. Yeah, yeah, like week, three days, days before. before. Yeah, well, exactly. that's why it might not be oppo. It might actually be real reporting nah I mean, it's entirely possible i mean if, if yeah this is what yeah. um uh georgia guy who's eric erickson yeah um, <laughs> who was on twitter last night getting a ton of pain because he had said he'd heard this as a rumor previously yeah from uh other campaigns but they didn't have the goods on it and then they couldn't find whatever this you know greeting card or what have you was 
But I mean, it's entirely possible that this is shoe leather reporting. I, I mean, Oppo is like a, an old news. Like I saw a John Fetterman clip the other day from him in the local news where he's talking about how he went after this black business, this black owned business, and was just defacing it in order to get them to shut down operations. Now, I'm sure yeah. he had a, a lot of rationale for that, which wasn't included in the Oppo dump <laughs> because that's that's what Oppo is. Yeah, you can smell it. All right. Well, I, I I put the odds of it being shoe leather reporting and not something served up to someone. Um, Oppo is a lot of things. It can be official. It can be there's a lot of money going in to this race and there's a lot of money circling around to find things. And uh, the I, I would put the likelihood that it is Oppo that was fed to the Daily Beast of some by somebody, not necessarily the Walker campaign, but, you know, an affiliate or what, you know, or. Republican group at 90%. But it doesn't really matter whether it's Oppo or shoe leather reporting. It's there. It's a thing. And that's why. But I mean, I do think, you know, campaigns classically hold things in reserve that they find out so that they don't spew it out too early and let people get used to it. Right. And that's partially what seems to have happened with a lot of the anti Walker stuff, a lot of which was just public knowledge, like the stuff about him, you know, about the multiple personalities and the cops being called and the wife and all of that i mean that's not anything you could just google that and it's there um but this is a fresh thing anyway um eric who is a uh, who is a yeah he's a lives in georgia was a republican official in georgia did a, a lot of elections in georgia and now has a talk show in, in georgia his tweet last night said i largely thought walker could pull this off despite his baggage i'll see what sort of response he mounts but given text messages tonight georgia republicans are praying for dr oz to win because if walker loses, it walker is a takeaway prospect right so uh for republicans since warnock is a democrat and if he loses and now you know i would say the odds are that he loses uh that puts that means that the evening begins with with democrats up one seat and if oz loses so they go from 51 you go from a 50-50 to 51-49. And then if Oz loses to Fetterman, that's also a Republican seat held by the retiring Pat Toomey, it goes to 52-48. And then Republicans have to pick up three, right? No, wait, no, 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 no. Warnock's a hold. What? Oh, Warnock's a hold. I'm sorry. So they get to 51-49. Um, that was a weird uh, glitch in my head. But they get to 51-49, which means they have to win Nevada, which... Adam Laxalt is now winning in Nevada and they have to they have to get one other somewhere and not lose in Wisconsin or Ohio. And I don't think JD Vance is going to lose in Ohio, but nonetheless they have they have to they have to win in Wisconsin and they would have to win one other place. Uh and not also not lose in North Carolina. Um so I you know it's a very it's a it's a it's a very interesting moment but i do think like what you your scenario noah is a very telling one because we've already had this whole thing about how okay pro-lifers went with trump because trump said i'll give you whatever you want and they therefore you know sold out their moral high ground for a mess of pottage for political power and getting the and arguably you could say that was a despite what a lot of people think that was a good deal. You got three pro-life justices and all of that, right? And a lot of pro-life justices, ju judges on courts. And he did what they wanted. He, they got paid off for their support. And so they should be happy. But <clears throat> even if even if they supported somebody who was a moral, you know, cat moral catastrophe and a disgusting person. But now they're going to vote for Herschel Walker as a senator. When in fact the Senate, oddly enough, see what's interesting is there's 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 nothing for him to do in the Senate. Dobbs has already decided. The codification of Roe by Congress is not going to happen. So you know, they're going to vote for Herschel Walker, a man who you know, unless they simply decide that they think that the story is fake, or if the story is proved fake, which it could be, I suppose. But anyway. Um, this is a this is a moral reckoning moment because it is not important for the pro-life cause that Herschel Walker be in the Senate, except 
on the grounds that you don't want anybody in the Senate if you're a pro-lifer who isn't a pro-lifer because that's where you stand morally. But I mean, if you have somebody who paid for something you consider a murder, and then you vote for him because he's not a because he's not a Democrat, I do. That is, you know, that's a that's a step down a very dangerous road. I mean, that is that is that's where the rubber meets the road. Like if if, if people think that pro-lifers sold their souls for Trump, they got something in exchange for that. Uh, you know, in the world of Machiavellian politics, but not here. Okay. So uh, have an easy fast. Uh, Gamar uh, Tov, Gamar Chatimatova. We'll be back on Thursday for Abe Christina Noam, John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.